With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Why did Stephen Hawking write his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time? I was surprised to hear the answer, and it was basically it was from the source's mouth, or one source away. I'm having one of my usual discussions with Dr. Brian Keating. We talk about a variety of fun, interesting topics, including why Stephen Hawking wrote A Brief History of Time. What's been so interesting, James, let's see, Jay, you're still recording, right? Okay, so you ever hear the book uh, Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking? Yes. It was actually one of the first, if if ever, like really, truly successful popular science books. And this guy, Leonard Malad, now speaks about writing books with Stephen Hawking. And it turns out, like, I didn't didn't realize two things about that book. Uh, First of all, I bought it when it came out in, like, 1988. I was in high school. I was, you know, thinking about being an astronomer. And I couldn't comprehend almost anything in it. And I remember going, when I was getting my PhD in the mid-90s, I went to the Royal Astronomical Society in London to hear Stephen Hawking speak. And at that time, he could still speak using, I mean, he could still move his finger. Somebody in the audience asked him, they said, Professor Hawking, why did you write this book that is rumored to have never been read by anyone, maybe even by yourself, uh, that's so successful? And he said, because my kid needed to pay for college, you know. And, uh, you know, in that synthesized voice that was so iconic. And I, I remember laughing, thinking that was kind of funny, or maybe even like, not venal, but whatever. It was just like, does he really write a book just to make money? Like, first of all, how do I get to do that? You know, and hence I wrote Losing the Nobel Prize, which, you know, 37 people read. Uh, well, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a joke uh, that someone makes that um, someone says to Stephen Hawking, you know, oh, everybody loved your book so much. And he was like, Really? Because I only did about four pages of science and the rest of it was just Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> and like nobody and noticed it. So nobody got to that part. <laughs> yeah, actually, they came out not too far apart from one another. But then I realized from talking to this guy that he actually had like severe um, anxiety that he was the sole breadwinner for like this huge clan of people. And it reminded me of like Galileo. Galileo was never married. He like had a lot of children. And, and Stephen Hawking actually like, one of his nurses who became his wife, she was married to the computer programmer that programmed his wheelchair and his voice synthesizer. Like he used the speech synthesizer that this guy did him this favor to make for his wheelchair, and then he seduced the man's wife. <laughs> so uh, I he was a player. I was astounded by that. But anyway, 
but I realized that he had to make money to support, you know, ex-wives. He's married, divorced uh, twice, I believe. And uh, and they had kids, and he and 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 there were like a lot of legal things. Like he, one of his kids was suing like one of his nurses because he thought she was like beating him up. He had to be turned like every hour. Imagine you're sleeping, and like you have to be turned over, and your bedpan checked, and your tracheotomy, you know, has to be cleaned out. Like all these, he had tremendous needs, and so he became. I asked this guy Milad now, he became a corporation. Effectively, so I asked him, "What was he like?" Uh, what spoke to me most about this book that they wrote, that he wrote about Stephen Hawking, called uh, "A Memoir of Friendship," was that he was a businessman and and he mm. was very astute. So so much so that he basically like breach of contracted a couple of his publishers at various times in his life. You know, starting with um, the first that first book where they wanted to give him an advance of twenty five thousand dollars can you believe it can you imagine getting an advance that big james no I, way I that's that's rich i know so he said no and they and he ended up getting like this profile of him in the new york times and then bantam books which never was really a, a publishing imprint he basically created them and so much so that when he went back for his final couple of books he demanded like they double his advance like from you know half a million to like triple it whatever and they did it. They were just like, you built this place. But he was so aggressive that, you know, he had to take care of people. And I, I never really fully appreciated that. And the other thing I never appreciated about that book was it was really a polemic against God. Like, you you don't think about that, you know, particular book. You think of it as, oh, it must have been very mathematical. Nobody read it. But it's really about, like, kind of eliminating one of the two ways that Stephen perceived the uh, the role of God being in the universe, and I found it fascinating. Because now I'm reading, it and it's like I don't I don't want to sound egotistical. It's I can understand it much better than I could when I was 16. Okay, um, I, I would I, hope so. I've right? tried it a couple of times. I I have not been able to read it. So you and I should go through it. It's it's actually a great book. It's well written. It's well argued. But what he's doing is he's arguing for one of the ways that we're going to talk about next time of how the universe could have began that he worked on with his colleague from UC Santa Barbara, a man by the name of James Hartle, who's still alive. And uh, they worked on a proposal in which the universe could have originated from nothing. It was really the first exposition of how a universe could come from nothing, not without the multiverse yet included. Well, don't some particles appear out of nothing yeah, but by definition, almost we can't detect them. So yes, in order to have a self-consistent treatment of quantum mechanics and, and and electrodynamics, you have to posit the existence of what are called virtual photons. Um, you can take two, two. So do you consider photons to be uh, something like in a vacuum? There's photon. Like if you go onto interstellar space, a billion miles away from Proxima Centauri's Uranus, you go out there and you make a little box, and the box is the size of your thumb. How many, how much stuff is in there? Like if you do a survey of what the heck is in that box, a Keating's thumb worth, what's in there? What do you think is in there? I don't know. So it's mostly em completely empty. You're likely to, to uh, have absolutely nothing except for 420, that's, that's the only way I can remember it is it's 420 time, and uh, 420 photons from the CMB. That's basically all that's in there on, on to good approximation. If you've got a cubic meter, you'll have a proton, you'll have some dark matter sprinkled in, and that's about it, plus you know trillions of photons now. 
But in every cubic centimeter of the universe, there are 420 photons. Now, every so often... Exactly 420? Well, 400, you know, statistically, you know, there's plus or minus something. It's actually 419. Uh -huh. Anyway, I don't want to get into uh -huh. that. Um, <laughs> I'm not allowed as being on parole conditions. But anyway, um, now, do you remember what a black body is? So this is actually why Planck, you know, started thinking about the quantum revolution. If you look at the sun, the sun is a black body. Anything that you heat up that has ordinary matter will glow at a different temperature and a different color depending on, on how hot you heat it up only. So when you put an iron into the fire, it glows reddish. That's because it's cooler than the surface of the sun, which glows yellow. If you could keep heating it up, it would turn blue and violet, and then it would go ultraviolet. You never see it. So there's some amount of energy and what's called a black body. It looks kind of like a bell curve, and it's a distribution of colors and wavelengths uh, for an object at a given temperature. And the CMB is a classic, it's the most perfect black body there is. There's some finite probability that the cold, cold CMB radiation, that every so often there might be a photon which has just exactly twice the mass of, a, of an electron, and then it will collide with another one moving in the opposite direction with exactly twice or ha uh, the mass of a, of a positron or an electron, they'll come together. They're electrically neutral. They'll create from nothing a positron, and which is the antiparticle to an electron. So they'll make an electron and a positron. And so isn't this part of the theory that you're talking about where enough random, uh, you know, photon-like particles created enough real matter that that, is how the universe was born. So in their conception, what they're more interested in is creating time, not creating matter yet, although that will have to, you know, uh, emerge at some point. But their proposal was that time could come into existence. The same way you're just proposed that matter comes into existence from non-matter, they were proposing that time itself could come into existence in other words, it would come out of some other property that was pre-existing. Namely, it could come out of the uh, separation of a spatial dimension which no longer exists, if that makes sense. It doesn't. I'd have to understand. I'd have to research that more. So we should talk about that. But the reason I wanted to bring it up now is that it stands, it stands in contradistinction to you know any of the theistic ways that we've talked about the universe originating. And that was Hawking's intent writing that book. In other words, he took a speculative, he realized that there's only two roles for God in the universe according to physics. He could say there's a personal God. He didn't believe in that, obviously. But he said, from a perspective of physics, what would a God do? Well, one thing a God would do is create the whole universe, right? That would be what he does or it does. And the other thing it would do is it would have to establish the laws of physics. So it would have to establish the ways that physical laws and properties of, of the speed of light, the mass of the electron, et cetera, how those behave. And so he realized if he could undermine either one of those two conditions, he would eliminate the physical requirement that God exists. That was his motivation in writing that book. How did he do it? Well, he argued that this completely speculative theory that he had come up with years, a few years before with this Professor Hartle at Santa Barbara, that the universe started because time came into existence from a pre-existing spatial dimension, peeling off like, you know, you, you've got, remember, imagine you got like a bundle of spaghetti 
you've got like a thousand pieces of spaghetti. They're all dry. They're all standing up like sticks. And then you pull one out. So that's kind of like a cylinder that goes just up and down. But then you pull a couple out and they fold out and then now they're perpendicular. You kind of made a one-dimensional thing into a two-dimensional thing. Or or maybe you made two pieces of spaghetti that were pointing in the same direction. Now you peel them off, one off from the other one. And now you've got two dimensions of space. We'll talk about it more next time. But, but that was sort of the idea. That you could create a dimension. And since space and time have the same stature within physics, thanks to Einstein, what's called a unity, a continuum of space-time, that therefore you could create the time dimension and it would have an origin, a central coordinate, like zero, zero on a Cartesian uh, coordinate system. Well, I, I have a question. What if it's not, we always act like time is a dimension what if it's not? What if it's a force like gravity? <laughs> what if what if there's what if we're being hit by timons, you know, the particle chronicons or whatever? And <laughs> that's uh, awesome. That's a great name. Uh, and that's what's moving us forward because we're constantly being hit by these these time particles. Yeah. So we we don't think that time is um, is is necessarily quantized, although we know we think that energy is quantized, and then that's the foundation of what the photon actually came to be in the case of, of light. First, you have to ask, well, what is time? I don't know if you ever thought about it, but it's very, very difficult to define what time is. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial 
when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Well, how do you think of time? I don't really. There's many different kinds, right? There's like biological time. There's psychological time. Yeah, just basically this idea that events move forward. So there's a there's a past, there's a future, there's right now. Although we don't ever really know, mm. right? We all could just be created right for this instant. Right. And it's one of those things that we could argue about, but it has no yeah, point. Yeah, it's like the free will argument that we started off talking about. Yeah. Um, 
Well, one good cogent definition of time, and, th- and that's valid what you said. It's not as encompassing. Uh, there's no good definition of it. It's basically time is what clocks measure. And then you could say, well, what the hell is a clock? Clock is something that changes. In other words, something that changes, it could be your body. You know that every 30 years, uh, your heart beats about a billion times. So in, in a lifetime, 90 years, you get 3 billion heartbeats. You know that you can have about, you know, a few thoughts per second at a good, you know. I, I aspire to have one thought per, per day, but, but you can have a couple thoughts per second. So now, like, so imagine now you're, maybe you can have 10. Like you have a 10 hertz processor in our brain, the equivalent of that in terms of thought generation. So that means like a good life, you could make 30 billion thoughts. And you could count them. And, oh, I had a thought. I had a thought. I had a thought. And that would be a clock. You could count your heartbeat. You know, it's not perfect. It does change over time. Um, you could count, like, rings on a tree. So all these are clocks, and they're just different manifestations of the time measurement problem that we wrestle with. So, you know, I do feel like this is a, you know, kind of a, a, a very important challenge that the definition of time is, is so squirrely and hard to come up with. Yeah, so maybe, maybe if that that's something we're studying, and because we just simply say, oh, it's a the fourth dimension. It's like a science fiction <laughs> novel, but it's a good question. What is it? And maybe it's something that could be measured more accurately, the way physics is. Yeah. Well, we do. You know, think about you know the physical ways to measure time, and that brings up clocks, right? So, well, well, th- think about it though with time, like when you're. If we're looking at a star, for instance, we're looking at it, we're not just looking at it in space, we're looking at how it was four years ago, yeah. like Proxima Centauri, because it takes like four years to get here. So it's like you could see the past. Yeah, so I hate that when people say, oh, the space-time continuum. It just sounds like people trying to sound smart, right? <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I do enough of that as it is. But um, but really, you should think about like, like what it, not what is time, but what is space-time. Like, in other words, what space-time is sort of, uh, I think of it as a bunch, like a giant monkey bar system, and there are these nodes, and between the nodes there's some space, there's some distance, and the di- the way that you measure distance is by the speed of light. How fast the speed, because the speed of light is the only constant in a universe of relativity. The only thing that's constant is that you and I, no matter how fast we're moving uh, in our careers or otherwise, we will always measure the speed of light to be the same, according to us, no matter, and I will always measure it in your frame when you shoot a laser beam and, and you're moving past me at half the speed of light, I'll still measure the light go- traveling at the speed of light. That's special relativity. So now, between each of these nodes in the monkey bar, the ball and socket joints that hold the frames of the jungle gym together, there will be some amount of time that it will take a light beam traveling between that location in space to get here. So you could also think about the complementarity. You could say, that thing is so many light seconds away or light years away, as you just said. You could measure things in terms of light travel time, and then you're just surveying these different things. Now, what are the things? They're not just objects. They're events. So this microphone is an event because it, it exists in space, but it also exists in time. So you can think of it like the state of this microphone is an event. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or your glasses, your hair. It's an event. It's not, you know, some of My hair is are- definitely an event. <laughs> <laughs> it's an event every morning when I try to untangle it. <laughs> the contanglement of There's space. Tears. To- all to There's yelling. <laughs> a lot of spritzing. Pain. There's a spritzing of a schmutz. 
Uh, so exactly. So we can think about that interconnected web of events. What links them is this melange of space and time put together. And, you know, so I think we, we think of the Big Bang as like space coming into existence. But according to Hawking and Hartle, time came into existence. It was carved out of something that was eternal, that didn't change, and is not a clock. So even a proton or an electron is a clock. It's vibrating. It has some, some fundamental changeability associated with it. But the universe and space-time itself, these events, you know, which don't have real meaning if time didn't exist, at least the coordinates in space exist in, this, in their notion. But the reason I bring it up is that he basically assumed that he was right. So imagine I have this theory of the multiverse. And I write this book. I say, if the if um, if there is a multiverse, we don't need God. Oh, look! I did this work uh, with this guy you who know, won the Nobel Prize. I um, you know proved that you know, and then I wrote this book, and and everyone accepts the conclusions of the book. Therefore, they'll accept my conclusions that there's no God, right? And and there's no evidence for this you know a no boundary uh, origin of the universe that we'll talk about next time. There's no evidence for it. Uh, in fact, even pursuing evidence for it, it's just something that is a mathematical approach and maybe the consequence of certain aspects of you know quantum mechanics or geometry but there's no there's no evidence for it so i want to come back to that maybe next time we'll talk about that origin of the universe but then the other remember i said there were two conditions that god fulfilled according to a physicist like stephen hawking to have yes. a purpose for god so one is to create the universe the other one was to establish the laws of physics well, guess what? In his final book, The Grand Design, he claimed that the laws of string theory establish the multiverse to be true, and therefore there's an infinite number of possible laws of physics, and we happen to find ourselves in a universe in which the laws of physics are suitable and commensurate with our existence. So behold, he's got them both. He killed God. He got, But there's no evidence right, for string it, theory either. So, So he basically says... That in every universe, there's a random set of laws and only, you know, out of gazillions of infinite number of universes, maybe one has the laws of physics such that life could exist or maybe two or three or, you know, it could be infinite, probably, but, but probably the, infinite, yeah. but like a percentage of the other infinity. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different levels of infinity, as you know, like there's an infinite yeah. number of integers, there's an infinite number of real numbers, there's an infinite number of decimal places in it, irrational. Yeah. So exactly. Uh, but I find it very, um, I don't know. It's, it's not satisfying to me. The more I get more sophisticated in my, uh, appreciation and, and it's interesting cause you know, Every now and then, like Eric or somebody will, Einstein will ask, "But why are you doing podcast? Like, are you trying to be like, you know, Alexander the Great and like survey the whole kingdom of of the of the world until there's no lands left to conquer?" And then they say, "You know, Alexander wept." Uh, no, I mean, I'm actually now I'm reading things like Sir Roger Penrose and understanding artificial intelligence, which he wrote about in 1989. Yeah, I mean, podcasting is a great way to just absorb an enormous amount of content because you have to, you read the books and, and writings of every single guest and you have to research and think of things unique to say, else why do a podcast? Yeah. And so you you learn, I mean, I've been doing, this is like seven years almost to the day that I've been doing podcasts wow. and it's, I've learned like, if I had never done a podcast, there would be so much less knowledge I would have. And you only, you only remember like one or 2% of each person, but lucky, yeah. still, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but you know, forcing and, and having these themes like Nobel prizes, aliens, uh, Big Bang, and then I'm doing so, like I had Amy Morin on last week because I'd seen her on your show, so she's great. ended up raising a lot of money uh, for her favorite charity, so that was really fun. Yeah, so I'm thinking about yeah, what is unique about my podcast? Um, you know, is really have uh, first of all, I'm doing a lot of live streams where I'm having question and answer for you know, like my dream is to have Jim Simons do a Q and A. You know, like he never d- would do that with anyone else. I've had on these really eminent people like Deepak Chopra's. You know, like I said, is coming on. He's got 35 million followers. You know, and I'm not going to pull punches with him. I'm going to say, look, this is how you're perceived by the physics community uh, as as a crank, as a as a kooky, you know, kind of person who picks and chooses laws of physics to suit your metaphysical needs. Uh, why do you feel the license? To, you know, whatever. But but I do it in a way that's you know, comatous is friendly is because I really want to know. I, I think he's a well. I, I would ask, by the way, if yeah, I, if I would me, ask, yeah, why do you want me to ask him? Basically, I mean, his first uh, big successful book was, I think, it was the Seven Laws of Spiritual Success. It had a title like that, uh-huh. and um, he's very good at translating this hodgepodge of Eastern thought into Western concepts into then practical usable context like so he'll take you know esoteric aspects of hinduism show the relationship between that and christianity or judeo-christian thought and then take that and basically say from this you can derive these seven ways to be successful Mm -hmm. and so each one of his books are Mm -hmm. like that he's like an interpreter into the different into the different worlds from from eastern world to western world to, to practical world what i like about him is that he had uh, he was, for some reason, invited. He did like a debate with Sam Harris, and during the debate, you know, he was talking about, you know, quantum physics can like explain this or explain that. And Sam was like, "I don't think that's how it works," but I'm not a quantum physicist. And then this guy, it was held at Caltech at the famous auditorium there, and this guy in the audience raised his hands like, "I'm a physicist." Uh, and it was this guy Leonard Malad now who wrote the book The Drunkard's Walk, and and he's like, yeah. you know. You don't know what you're talking about. And then Deepak's like, well, why don't you explain it to me? And then the two of them went on to write a couple of books together. And so, oh, wow. so you know, he is a very curious person. He certainly has an empire. You know, I can go up to there. He's it's in San Diego County. And you go there and you get Deepak tea. But, you know, how is that different than like Ray Kurzweil, who like believes in the singularity? So take these medica- these vitamins, you know, from the Kurzweil vitamin shoppy, and, and you'll be able to live to see the singularity. You know, so I feel like, Look, everyone's doing stuff. There's one thing I've learned from you, and I want to express my gratitude to you for getting to know you so well and having so much fun on the show with you this year and uh, you coming on my show and and hopefully uh, many future returns, uh, is that, you know, the main point is that you're having fun. Like, if somebody said, James, if someone said, Brian, you're forbidden from doing podcasting, you know, uh, the last executive order of Donald Trump is, uh, is James Mane is forbidden forever from podcasting on any continent uh, on earth, including Antarctica. Um, I think it would be pretty devastating to you. Not, not, not just because your income or whatever, but because it's part of your identification of yourself. And for good reason, you've crafted this like amazing thing you've done. like Stephen Colbert. If they said you can't be a talk show, you'd be devastated. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. And you know, when we could have this conversation is, so my book, Skip the Lines, yeah. coming out February 23rd. When we talk about that on on your podcast, it's it's related because, you know, people switch interests, switch passions. And then how do you avoid being a dilettante? How do you still get good enough that you could appreciate the nuances, the complexity of what you're doing? Yeah, exactly. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I was planning, assuming that you were willing to, to come back on, you know, when the book comes out. 
and uh, to have you on and talk about our experiments. We still haven't talked about, so I took one of our podcasts that was released recently uh, was about the simulation hypothesis. So how the simulation of uh, the advancement of, of Moore's law and technology will lead to super powerful virtual reality and so forth. And I will actually be able to simulate entire civilizations and people. And and why not with a trillion year advance? Why can't it be that we are the byproducts of a civilization that lives, you know, somewhere in the future, or whatever, and simulate? Or maybe they are simulations too. Anyway, I took that and I uploaded it to this AI program called Otter.ai. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, is it like GPT three? It's it's not like GPT three, but that's another thing I want to talk to you about. So GPT three. What my friend and I were talking about is he took like every one of his guests that he's ever had and he just dumped in the transcripts from them. And then and then he said like, who else should I invite on my show? And it came out like, um, I'll just make it up, uh, Steven Pinker and um, James Clear. And, and it was like all these people that he had on his show. Uh, and so then he told it, well, I've had those people on my show um, and then who else should I have on, basically? And it came out with like these awesome predict that are like not too hard to get, like James Altucher or whatever, Max Tegway, which is like really accurate. And he's like, hmm, wonder if I could get this to not only identify guests for me on the show, but send them a letter, send them an email. Cause you know, like the email, like when I do a cold email to like Barack Obama, I have to say, like, I'm a chancellor's professor at UC San Diego. I wrote this book, Losing the Nobel Prize. I host a podcast, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating into the impossible, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, I could just write it and have GPT-3 write it for me and send it to people. And it'll be like tailored for their interest. Like I heard, and it'll take all their previous podcast. So Barack Obama, you were on NPR and you talked about, uh, and it will take like some unique thing. Like he studies, um, let's say he studies uh, artificial intelligence. And it'll just like, oh, you gave this quote once about this book that was written about Ray Kurzweil. And blah. and then it'll be like optimal probability to get the guest to say yes. And he's like, hmm, maybe we can take this. Let's have it write the question. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> so that's what I want to do with you next year. You know what? You know what would be interesting is load in all, for instance, of Stephen Hawking's books, and then have Stephen Haw the AI Stephen Hawking as a guest. That's exactly what I, I'm, I'm thinking of doing when I talk to this guy, Michael Saylor. Uh, he's very interested in artificial intelligence and Bitcoin, and stuff. but um, uh, yeah, exactly. Take all of Galileo. Take this when I'm done with the audio book. I'll dump it into GPT three, and I'll have put myself out of a job. But once you get a better education, won't it be a better service to do that and to be taught, you yeah. know, geometry by Euclid rather than Brian Keating? Yeah, that's. Uh, I've been. I've been wondering. I we haven't figured out how to get access to GPT three, but. I want to load in all 700 or 800 of my yeah. podcasts that I've done and then do a, a podcast with the generic guest of my show. They don't want to do it for like academic research primarily. Yeah. But, um, but I think it'll be a fun experiment. Uh, but even before we get there, the first step is for us to use just like already available stuff. So I got this otter.ai. I uploaded our simulation conversation and it like identifies your voice. It gets a lot of things right. And you can pay a little bit more. Like if you if you normally say, you know, simulation hypothesis, like it won't get that. But then you tell it, this is one of my custom words and it will always get that. Or ekpyrotic universe, it will get mm -hmm. that. Um, so you can do stuff like that. So I'll send you it. But what's cool is it's like that Descript program or whatever. You'll hear us talking, you and I are talking, and then it will show you in real time the words that we're saying. And then we can go back and edit the words in the transcript. So the reason I want to do this with you is I want to make a blog post 
or an article, just two people sat down and talked about simulation hypothesis and AI transcribed it. Here's what here's what came out. Like it's, yeah, it's like an experiment. Yeah. It's kind of funny. And then so you need to sign up for this otter.ai. And then I can share the file with you and you'll see it going across the screen. But there's so much stuff we can do with this, James. We can do, um, yeah, every single podcast you ever did will ch- we'll turn it into a book, basically. Like, whatever. And we would talk yeah. about that some other time. But um, but the other thing it can do, it's not 100%, obviously. But um, what I want to do is start feeding it in, like, physics stuff. Like, equations of motion and string theory. And, and like, because, yeah, maybe some of it won't match up with the data, but but... It, it might be like, oh, well, you didn't know that there actually is this observed signal from like 65, you know, papers ago and and you just never knew it because a human being can only absorb 1% of what he or she reads. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to look that up, otter.ai. Yeah, and it's then, fun. It's fun to play with. So, so, so we're going to break this probably into two podcasts. Yeah. My, my guess is, so next time we're going to talk about couple more theories. And then finally, I want to hear what you really think yeah. happened. <laughs> okay. After all, right. all that, what is the answer? We need will, to know an answer. I will do it. I cannot wait. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.